Welcome to When We Speak, where we shed stigmas, say goodbye to shame, strengthen ourselves, and encourage others. I am your host, Tasha Hunter. This is a podcast where I am blending the intersections of race, gender, sexuality, faith, and trauma. If there is a topic that most people say we're not supposed to talk about, I'm talking about it because that is how we heal. We don't heal in silence, we heal by speaking out. Today I have as my guest Tokopa Turner. She's the author of her book, Belonging, uh, Remembering Ourselves Home. And uh, Tokopa, before I get into giving you all the praise for, for this beautiful book, <laughs> if you would, uh, please introduce yourself to listeners. Oh, sure. Identities. Ah, yes. Okay. Well, um, I use the pronouns she and her, and my name is Tokopa. A lot of people think that I chose my name um, because um, I guess that's pretty common these days, especially on the West Coast where I spent a lot of time. Um, But actually it was given to me and uh, my parents chose it from a book of poems from different cultures around the world. And Tokopa is actually a Maori name um, from the indigenous culture of New Zealand. And um, the, it's not a deity per se, but Tokopa is sort of the parent of the mist in the creation story. And um, so I, I feel like I'm growing into my name. Maybe that's a good way to describe myself, to introduce myself as someone who is growing into um, the role of being one of those many people, such as your good self, who are parenting that misty dimension between the worlds. Oh, thank you so much. So we were speaking um, off air about my love um, of your book, and it reminded me of, um, I don't know if you've read Elizabeth Gilbert's book, Big Magic. I haven't read that one, no. Well, she talks about, and it's been years since I read it, so I hope I'm remembering it in the right way, but basically there's this concept of like creativity and how when things come to us, if we don't use it or do anything with it, sometimes it'll go to the, like another person so that they can still bring forth what needs to be brought forth, you know, whatever that creative endeavor is or whatever project or whatever. But also what she talks about, uh, Tokopa, is that how we're, we're linked, we're linked. And, and so I may be feeling and thinking a thing and, and have a way in which I write, but someone else also has that. And so when I read your invocation at the beginning of the book, it connected with me because I've written something similar just in my journey or journal, just for me, because I needed to picture who is my writing for. So I felt like, and maybe it's the Leo in me, I'm not sure. (laughs) I felt like you were writing directly to me, like... (laughs) Uh, and so if, if you'll allow me just for a brief moment, I'm going to just read the invocation to listeners. I would love that. For the rebels and the misfits, the black sheep and the outsiders, for the refugees, the orphans, the scapegoats, the weirdos, for the uprooted, the abandoned, the shunned and the invisible ones. 
May you recognize with increasing vividness that you know what you know. May you give up your allegiances to self-doubt, meekness, and hesitation. May you be willing to be unlikable and in the process be utterly loved. May you be impervious to the wrongful projections of others. And may you deliver your disagreements with precision and grace. May you see with the consummate clarity of nature moving through you that your voice is not only necessary, but desperately needed to sing us out of this model. May you feel shored up, supported, entwined, and reassured as you offer yourself and your gifts to the world. May you know for certain that even as you stand by yourself, you are not alone. Love, Tokopa. Reading this entire book, there's so much that resonated because in this season, which is still evolving as it should, when I was when I read your book, I was in a season of where belonging was the theme of my life. And I at first, and we're going to talk about this, I first thought about just that I needed to belong to people or in spaces. But really, as I kind of am still going through this metamorphosis, it's that I needed to belong to myself and practice that belonging. When you were writing this, this, this book, did you kind of know that, that you were, that, that, did it feel like a calling card to the outcast, to those that, that are exiled? Did it, was that your intent? I think more than anything, it was a calling to myself. It was a question that I was asking, just like you were asking, um, where do I belong? Where is this mythical place of belonging? Why does it seem to me, at least from the outside looking in, as if other people are inside of this thing that I don't have. And it really plagued my life in conscious, but mostly unconscious ways. And I think like many people who are experiencing a sense of alienation or exile, it drives us to try and find that place of belonging in places that aren't always good for us. And um, so this had happened to me um, many times, you know, whether it was getting into the wrong relationship, whether it was getting involved with a spiritual group of some kind, whether it was a vocation or, you know, a job that I thought would give me that thing, um, and so on and so forth. All these unconscious ways in which I was really being driven by this longing to belong and this feeling of somehow living in exile. And what happened was I ended up finding this spiritual group who um, with just being having very little exposure to the people who were involved in the group, I thought, oh, maybe this is for me. Maybe this is finally that place. And so I started to hang out with them and become involved with them. And um, the, there was a leader of this spiritual group, a man. And um, when I spent my very first weekend in retreat with this fellow, 
I just didn't like him at all, actually. And I felt like, oh, everything inside me was like, no. I um, I found it sort of imperialistic and hierarchical and all that patriarchal stuff that I think we're in the process of of shedding and trying to shed. And um, and so I I left. But when I left this group, one of the women in the group who I really cared about a lot and who was the first person in in years that I thought could be real community for me, um, told me that there would be consequences to my leaving. And I thought, well, that's a very strange thing to say. And I didn't really understand what she meant by that. But I would come to learn that actually she and that group would shun me. It wasn't as if I was involved with these people for a very long time. It was really just quite superficial in a sense. But being exiled in this way, quite overtly, and being made an example of, triggered this deep wound that lived in my bones. And so that unconscious thing that I was telling you about stopped being unconscious and it rose up to the surface and suddenly it was in my face. And I could see how I had been carrying around this wound that resonated with this local situation, but actually was, you know, archetypal in nature. And I, so I, I knew that I had to write about it. I had to grieve through it. I had to look at it. I had to understand its dimensionality. I didn't want to have it governing my life any longer. And I wanted to really understand it. And so I brought these questions to the surface. And uh, at first I thought I was just writing my journal, uh, but, but it just went on and on for months and months and um, even years. And I realized, uh-oh, I think I'm writing a book about this. <laughs> what, what resonates with me is one, the different ways in which we can be exiled, the different ways in which we can be punished for doing what's right for us. But what this allowed you, at least from how I'm, the way I'm hearing it, is you became super clear of who you were and you started to excavate the wound, not just from this experience, but from other experiences. Yes, again and again, right? Of um, um, starting to see the pattern then in all the different places of exile. And um, the other thing is I started talking to other people and those people that appeared to have or possess some state of belonging, when I would speak to them directly, they would reveal to me privately that actually they had the same feeling of, of longing to belong and feeling like an outsider. And that's when I started to become suspicious that this wasn't just a personal quandary, but this was something um, on a, a cultural and epidemic level that we are dealing with. And that's when it started to get really interesting. <laughs> and so um, the book is so much a, a process of what you, could, what you so beautifully called excavation of bringing those things out into the open and noticing that there was this healthy impulse to um, become more myself 
again and again and again, increasingly so forevermore, you know, without a place of attainment. And that's when I realized that belonging isn't a place at all that is outside of ourselves, that if we keep searching for, you know, one day we're going to hit on it and then we'll live happily ever after. It's actually a dynamic process. And we go through these contractions or periods of aloneness and exile, and then periods of coming into togetherness and um, connection. And that that's also perfectly natural. But in a way, these periods of exile are necessary to um, break through to those new levels through initiation into new levels of uh, a deeper version of belonging to ourselves and to each other and to the world and to the earth. But what I found, found is in moments when I am alone, when I am exiled, when I'm feeling like it's just me in the world and I'm suffering, is it does reveal the wound and it allows me to go back and heal and give attention to younger Tasha. All the other versions of me, it allows me to give attention to them mm-hmm. and, and, and to speak into their life, the fact that, that, that they are worthy, that they are not defined by relational failures, that my success, my safety, my being is not dependent on people who are not in my life. Yeah, I don't know if that, that resonates. Mm-hmm. So much, so much. Yeah, there. It can be so difficult to um, to have a relationship broken, especially if it's a close one. Um, whether that's blood ties or whether it's in, you know other kinds of intimacy, um, but to have those, to have that familiarity broken, and. Um, I think we're very conditioned to think that these things are failures when in fact they can be so necessary to our growth, right? I had this um, really powerful dream when I was writing Belonging. And the dream was that there was um, somebody who was building this big um, deck outside a house and they had left a hole in the deck Um, which they planned to plug a tree into so it could live in that hole. And in the dream, I thought to myself, well, that makes no sense because the tree will only be that size for a certain amount of time. And then soon it will grow beyond that hole. And um, that's a backwards way of going about things. And in the moment that I had that thought, the entire um, decking uh, became uh, um, charred and it began to dissolve into ash. And I woke up from that dream and I immediately understood that I needed to reframe the way that I thought about belonging as finding a place to fit in that that was a backwards way of thinking about belonging, that actually one had to grow one's full size, and then maybe something could be built around it from there. 
So I think relationships are very much like this, you know, rarely, but occasionally you do find somebody in your life who will grow with you and who will move through those, um, those growth spurts and changes. Um, but often we also have relationships that will not, that will um, require us to stay small. And um, this is what the poet John O'Donohue calls false belonging, false belonging, when there are um, places or relationships or even jobs, careers that um, require, you know, the, the very definition of fitting in is that it requires us to cut parts of ourselves off in order to fit in, as opposed to belonging, which is a kind of creation of one's own making, a practice of one's own doing, of uh, building infrastructure around one's, you know, true nature. The, the difference in belonging and fitting in it, it really also kind of resonates with the importance of, of vulnerability, the importance of authenticity, because as you grow yourself up, the more that you can be a little bit vulnerable, a little bit more authentic, the more authentic you are, then belonging is around you. It's, it's, yeah. it's the gift that you, you receive. Yes. Yeah, it's like if you are trying to live a false version of yourself, the version that you think others want to see, maybe you want to be happy all the time or have a positive out attitude or, you know, um, be feminine or be masculine or whatever those projections are that people put onto you um, or competent or, or intellectual or whatever the thing is for you, the more you try and live into that version that is expected of you, um, the less you can authentically connect with people who are your true kin because they can't see you. So it's a kind of disguise, right, when we do that. So when you talk about authenticity and vulnerability, it makes me think of a kind of nakedness, a kind of... Um, uh, being at home in one's skin and with one's orientation and with one's soul in order to recognize your likeness and have your likeness be recognized by others. Oh, that is so beautiful. Um, and it goes back to what led you to write your book, This go, having this experience, which is such a lonely and isolating experience but then eventually meeting others. And had you not had your own experience and been able to name what had happened to you, the wounding, you wouldn't have met others. Yeah. Wouldn't have led to this book. Mm. That certainly is, is healing so many people and generations will go on to mm. heal. You know, we talked about chapter three of your book. And I'd mentioned that I have a special relationship with the number three. And, uh, and it's the chapter that led me to call all my friends, my chosen family and say, you have to get this book. Let me read. So, so many recorded messages of me reading this book <laughs> to my friends. And if you'll allow again, I just want to read the parts that. That's Do it. <laughs> So chapter three is about death mother 
And I read Death Mother and, and it's it stopped me. It, so, so I'm going to read this part. The Death Mother is a term for the energy or archetype that resents, abandons, and even wants to destroy her child. Death Mother was originally coined by Jungian analyst Marie-Louise Van Franz and later fleshed out by author, teacher, Jungian analyst Marion Woodman in her interview with Daniela Seif confronting the Death Mother. As the death mother's target, the child eventually develops the conviction that she is living in a dangerous world and that her life is at risk. But long after leaving the family home, the child is haunted by the death mother who campaigns against her from the inside out. And then you go on in a different section, same chapter, and you say, regarding the death mother, that we begin conflating her voice with our own and then you quote Woodman again, and you say, if this child knew in the womb that it was not the gender the parents longed for, or there was no money for another child, or timing in the marriage was bad, or it barely escaped abortion, this child knows it is not welcomed into life, not wanted. Is there anything worse for a helpless infant to experience in its bones? As the child gets older, she will project this being not wanted onto others, anticipating rejection from friends, authority figures, even life itself. Worst of all, the child will turn that stone cold glare on herself. And then lastly, suicide was the concretized version of the rejection I felt aimed at me every day. Being a survivor, of many attempts to end my life. That spoke to me, that knowing that I wasn't wanted and then just recognizing the woundedness in utero, the trauma of all of that, how it played out in my, my life. And I feel like you writing chapter three is so transformative for anyone who's ever, one, been exiled, two did not belong in their family of origin or the family that that raised them this was important and i know that it couldn't have been easy as we talked about before to write this chapter and i'll pause there and just kind of let all of this breathe yeah it's a tough chapter and people um, sometimes say to me that they get stuck in this chapter before going on to the rest of the book which i understand because um you know, it's there's a fabled story about Marion Woodman at the end of her life, um, towards the end of her life, where she said that she um, she wanted to write a book about the death mother, but she thought it would kill her. And um, I understand what she meant by that was that as somebody who had this internalized um, death impulse inherited from a traumatic situation that to defy it by trying to bring it into the open and expose it to the light of day was to invite i mean something bigger than conflict right um danger mm -hmm. internally inter internal danger and um, so this is this is really what happened to me when I wrote this chapter is, um, you know, I tell quite a bit of my own story in this book. It's not 
all memoirs, but they are sort of woven in there. And um, I left home at a very young age, primarily because of a an abusive and volatile relationship with my mother. And um, I had gone pretty much a lifetime before I came across the work of Marion Woodman on the death mother. I had never heard anybody speak about the mother in, in as an, anything other than the positive, nurturing, loving archetype that we know very well on Mother's Day, right? And so I felt that in order to talk about belonging in a way that was embodied, that I needed to talk about the, um, the seat of my own exile as a small person. And um, so the death mother in this way um, stands out in the book <laughs> um, as its own thing, really. Um, and lots of people have the experience of um, experiencing abuse and violence um, from men, the men in their lives. Um, and so I felt like it was important to um, give voice to this other kind of violence and how incredibly insidious it is because it lives in our own psyche and hurts us from the inside out. So that's why I did that. But I will say that I experienced that danger in profound ways. I would sit down to write and literally have panic attacks just trying to language this stuff. Um, and at night, I would dream that my mother was trying to kill me, push me off. I was climbing a mountain. I remember once I was climbing this mountain and it was my body was exhausted and I was at this terrible height and she was trying to push me off the mountain. And these are terrifying dreams for me. Um, but I kept going and um, hearing you and how you have received it is so meaningful to me because it means that um, it has helped to um, elevate the work of uh, Marion Woodman and also Daniela Sif, who I mentioned quite a lot in this chapter. And, uh, you know, uh, Ironically, at the time that we're recording this conversation, I had um, just received a new book um, from another psychotherapist who's a Jungian-oriented psychotherapist on the death mother. So there's, there's some kind of momentum that is building there where we're contributing to this conversation um, and bringing it out into the open. And the reason why I think that is so valuable is because we need to identify the um, uh, destructive side of the mother archetype so that it isn't saddled either on those women who feel isolated in, and alone and unsupported in the um, impossible job of mothering in capitalism um, and white supremacy. Um, but then also um, to, to acknowledge that um, children of those mothers need not be saddled with the responsibility of not seeing it reflected 
on the outside anywhere, right? Regarding that, the death mother archetype, mothers who hunt and eat their young, there aren't enough voices speaking to this. There are many of us out here. Thank you for naming the re-traumatization that happened and speaking out. I don't know. I feel like my heart is so full in hearing you because when I was writing my memoir, I experienced like my body was suffering during the writing, writing about my mother. And for 20 years of my life, I would have dreams that I was climbing mountains and falling, falling off of bridges, jumping off of bridges, levitating, flying, always trying to get away, always trying to get away. And um, it it seems like I, I don't really, I haven't done anything to like really know like where that all came from. But the more safe that I became in my life, those nightmares they just stopped. Um, and I'm super grateful to the universe for that. But um, such resonance with, with your experience as well. Mm. Well, what a testament to your, your ability and practice of staying in your body and showing up for a life that is often unbearable. especially especially as a survivor of trauma you know tokopot it um i was telling a client this yesterday those of us who were outcast rebels black sheep misfits however you know anybody wants to, to label us it really feels um like we have to be born we have to be born in the way that we are born in order to heal our genetic line in some way, in order to, to finally be the person that says, danger, this is not good, this is unhealthy, this is toxic, and it stops with me. Mm. The labor was painful. All of it's been, you know, so traumatizing, but we had to go through it to stop it mm. in mm. our lifetime. Mm. For the for net for for other generations, those that belong to us and that don't, it stops. I don't know if that if that makes sense at all. Oh yeah, it makes all the sense, and I guess I just pray for a future for the young ones coming up around us that it that at some point it can cease to be necessary that there is this constant. Um, processing of trauma that can't be metabolized in the previous generations but I also feel you know like we have so much to learn and um, we continue in present time to repeat the same traumatizing patterns um, that uh, perpetuate this 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 hardship that we're talking about So I just want to hold some space for the prayer that it is possible, perhaps, to live in a way that is in consonance with joy and with nature and with harmony. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Amen to that. Maybe not in our lifetimes, (laughs) except maybe, you know, once in a while. (laughs) 
<laughs> but you know, we'll hold that space. <laughs> I am holding it with you. Um, maybe because of my own journey, I don't know, but I am noticing that there are more people who are needing and craving, desiring of community, grieving community. Has it always been this way or or is has something shifted to where there's an increase? Yeah, for sure. I think I think that um you know, we can probably look to a lot of indigenous and pre-Christian cultures um, that lived in relative harmony and a sense of belonging, um, you know, as best we can through, you know, colonial lenses. But, um, but I think that um, there probably were times on earth where, you know, it's really only fairly recently that um, we've been in a constant state of, of war and dislocation and disorientation and loneliness and alienation. And I, it, my perception is that it has really amped up in the last couple hundred years since the advent of rationalism. Um, and so, so we need to swing the pendulum and, um, you know, I was obsessed with this idea uh, around belonging. And so I wrote this book, but around the same time, a spate of other authors wrote books, uh, you know, that were adjacent or, or shared common ideas. And that will continue to happen, I think, as we are reckoning with this epidemic of alienation. So yes, I think there are more people talking about belonging and trying to understand what, what really is community, not in a lip service sense or a mythological sense, but in what does it look like to get our hands dirty and be, you know, mutually aid each other and to reclaim power of the people to topple those you know, hierarchical, vertical systems of power over. Um, it's a big conversation. And there are a lot of uh, different doorways into that conversation that we need people from all the disciplines <laughs> and all the backgrounds to be contributing to, to the shift in cultural consciousness um, that will help us actualize that vision that we're having around peace and harmony. Um, but I think a, a huge part of that is developing these, a skillfulness, a set of skills or capacities around practicing at belonging in our own lives. And, um, and even as much as we can practice, it, you know, through self-development, still we are limited by the context of culture, which is constantly thwarting our progress, um, whether that's through racism or capitalism or politics, um, dualistic thinking, and so on and so forth. So. Um, 
So I think we really have to kind of drill down on what are those skills? What are those competencies of belonging? And how can we begin to shift at the microcosmic level, which is in our personal lives, within the limitations um, of the established culture so that we can begin to become the crack that undermines establishment and eventually can birth a new um, civilization. So here's what I heard. Are you telling, <laughs> Tokopa, are you telling me that belonging is resistance to white supremacy, patriarchy, and capitalism? Yes! <laughs> to start. <laughs> Those are yeah. the basics. <laughs> That's the basics, right? Yeah, I love no biggie. Um, you know, we can throw ecocide in there too, you know, because I mean, that's, that's a huge problem. But of course, you know, capitalism uh, and, and dualistic thinking, all those things are, you know, what cause us to exploit the earth for, for profit. And, um, you know, we're on this tipping point at the right now where we're seeing the um, fast extinction on a mass scale of living beings on earth. So this, this conversation has to happen at that broader level outside of the human culture as well. So we have our work cut out, but yes, resistance. Yes. And so going back to the practicing, practicing belonging, in what ways are you practicing belonging today? Mm, I love that question. Well, let me start by sharing that um, I live with a degenerative disease, which is an autoimmune condition called rheumatoid disease. And um, since the pandemic, and so it, it's being treated by medication, which is giving me a good quality of life, a better quality of life than it was even just a couple, like one year ago, I was in very bad shape. Um, and it has disabled me in multiple ways. So I also identify as disabled. Um, and since the pandemic started, um, you know, suddenly here's this, you know, virulent um, uh, disaster um, out in the world. And um, I essentially had to remain isolated because um, I'm a little different than say regular people who might be able to recover fairly quickly without possibly too much harm from getting COVID. Um, it could kill me because I don't have a working immune system to fight any of it off. So I've been in isolation for the last to how long has it been now at the time of this call? Two and a half years. About close to three. Mm -hmm. yeah, close to three. And I am a Leo too, by the way. So I am an extremely social person who derives energy from connection. So thank you for talking to me today. Um, but I have been living in a bubble for almost three years. And um, so belonging uh, doesn't look anything like what it looked like to me three years ago. Mm -hmm. 
And so what has been um, the focus of my practice um, is belonging to belonging to Sophia. And um, I don't know if you know much about Sophia. The um, Sophia is a, a divine feminine um, counterpart to God and actually appeared in the ancient, ancient scriptures um, as the feminine manifestation of God. Um, but of course, with the rise of Christendom, uh, she was exiled, stripped of her personification and turned into an abstract concept subsumed into the image of Jesus. And, um, and so now Sophia is referred to in, in biblical texts as wisdom, wisdom. And so for the last five or so years, I have devoted my attention to learning the teachings of this divine feminine wisdom. And um, it's been a really um, deep difficult and extraordinarily exciting process for me. And um, I'm just at the stage where I think I'm beginning to feel some familiarity with her. And the way that I understand Sophia is she is that underlying animating force in all of nature. It is she that appears in those moments of synchronicity that burst through ordinary reality. She is that force that stitches together our dreams in a meaningful order, similar to the way DNA unfolds in our biology. Um, there is an unfolding for us psychically, if we can learn to understand the language of dreams, that it is leading somewhere which is destined. And... Um, she is also that which we find in poetry, um, those moments that give us a sense of all things breathing and moving as one organism. And so this is where my devotion is right now. And I want to belong with that. I want to give my devotion to that and learn to live in a way that is um, in giving that the most authority within my own psyche, within the way I live my life, within the way that I speak. And there's a lot of dismantling involved, um, dismantling of old patriarchal, rationalistic, materialistic structures. And so it's a bit of a constant process, but that's how I'm practicing right now. Yeah, you, so I wrote down uh, four words that you didn't necessarily say, but it's just how my body received what you were saying. I wrote down belonging to yourself means exploration, creativity, rest, knowing your boundaries mm. and how to serve your soul, your body, your being best. Mm. Um, an education, which ties into what you were um, speaking of 
you mentioned personal development. And so this, this is your practice, as I understand it, of belonging. Mm. Correctly, Tokupa? Well, I, I like what you received from that. And, um, <laughs> you know, I think the part that resonates the most for me is this idea of, of space, of rest. And um, because the only way I can, uh, the only way any of us can be in touch with wisdom is by creating a spaciousness for that knowing to come through. You know, in the opening invocation, you read that one line and, and I say, uh, may you know what you know. That's Sophia, that wisdom that is, um, you recognize it when you come across it. And um, the word recognize is you recognate, right? So you re, you see it again for the first time, right? It may feel new to you, but it also feels ancient. That's the quality of wisdom that I'm so interested in um, cultivating and listening for. And as you say, it, it requires boundaries and space and a reclamation of, you know, your, your, um, your dreams. Mm, yes. So I want to get into a little bit more of your work with dreams. How did you start working with, with dreams? What inspired you to go in that direction? Yeah, I was kind of born that way. I had incredibly vivid um, metaphysical dreams when I was a really small person, really remarkable experiences of transmissions and visitations and all kinds of really powerful things that happen in my dreams. And nothing to me was more interesting than that. Mm -hmm. And um, it wasn't until I was, I think I was about 19 years old, um, when I discovered the work of Carl Jung, who was the Swiss psychoanalyst um, and the founder of analytical psychology. And uh, when I, I remember picking up Man and His Symbols, Man and His Symbols, which is a wonderful little easy to read book, um, a collection of different essays from different thinkers in the Jungian field. Um, and I just felt like I had found my people. I mean, these were people who were interested in talking about dreams and the psyche and, and you know, how to navigate it and how to understand the metaphor, the metaphoric language of dreams. And I just couldn't get enough of it. And it set me on a, a path of becoming very deeply interested in, in that school of um, psychology. Um, but more than anything, it turned me towards my dreams again and again. And um, that I would say my dreams are my real teacher um, because there are limitations still again, like we talked about, you know, limitations to academia and the whole academic approach to dreams. Um, whereas I was, uh, I wanted to have a direct relationship with them and, um, and so I did. I, I found certain times in my life, usually during periods of exile where I was confused and I didn't know where I was going next, that I, was I would naturally turn back towards my dreams. And um, I told you I left home at a very young age and I ended up being put into the system. And I remember that's when I started for in earnest, keeping a journal. And I wrote down all of my dreams. And even though I didn't 
know how to understand them at that age, um, I still felt as if they were parenting me. And um, so I really feel as if my dreams, you know, in a time of essentially being an orphan, that my dreams were my parent. And um, and so they still are. And uh, in that way, I'm, I'm still uh, a novice and an apprentice. Um, always they are showing me the edge of what I think I know and what is so much faster and beyond my comprehension. Um, so yeah, I would say that's that's kind of the Cole's Notes version of how I became interested in it. And um, it wasn't until uh, I actually ended up having a career in the music business. I was um, an A&R person, which is the person in a record company who signs artists to record contracts. It was a very fast paced, um, you know, high living lifestyle. Um, and the company that I was working for went bankrupt. And uh, as a workaholic at the time, I was thrown into a period of profound exile after that. I didn't know who I was because I had identified so profoundly with my career and my position. Um, but I started having these immensely powerful dreams. And um, that's what I call my dark night of the soul. It lasted... Um, you know, several years. And in that time, I had to face a lot of inner demons um, and try to understand who I was um, underneath all of that. And from that work, the dream, the dream school, which is um, my work uh, with others around dreams was born. And that was in 2001. So, um, so yeah, we're a little over 20 years since then that I have been um, on this soapbox. Thank you so much. <laughs> and so I, I, I kind of want to talk a little bit more about dreams. And if you would mind sharing some insights into the gifting of, of, of dreams and, and maybe even like the power of remembering, the power of writing down. Mm. Yeah, well, you know, there's lots of, there's a few different ways to record your dreams, but um, I am a writer, so it's, that's the most natural for me. Um, but there's something about writing down your dreams that the dreams just love. Uh, and it's, it, it's like watering a garden. It just causes it to just flourish. Um, and my, my, thinking uh, as to why that happens is that it is a kind of validation. You know, we are valuing them by giving them a space on the page, by giving them a space in our lives, and by valuing this sacred function, they tend to flourish and they tend to respond. I, I think of it a little bit like um, a lover you know, if you, if you ignore them and don't pay them any attention, well, eventually they're going to disappear and go away. And this is what we call forgetting. I don't remember my dreams. People say that all the time, but really forgetting is a choice. You know, it's a passive choice, but it's a choice. Um, and so if we look at the lover and we say, 
wow, you are so beautiful. And I'm so curious about you. And whoa, you really scare me, but I'd like to understand you. Um, and then they begin to open their hearts to us and they begin to flower and flourish. Um, and I don't want to give the impression that all dreams are beautiful and gorgeous, because especially for people who um, are healing from trauma, dreams can feel as if they are torturing us sometimes. Um, but really what I think they are doing is um, turning up the volume on something that is trying to get our attention. Mm. And um, if we can just give them a moment and give them some space and allow ourselves to be confused by them or to not understand, uh, to not know, but to just be curious about what they might be saying to us, um, that goes a long way to turning the volume back down. And uh, eventually you'll find with a practice that if you're somebody who suffers with a lot of nightmares, um, that the practice of trying to understand the language of your dreams, of learning that language and giving them that value and space, um, they won't talk in such a loud voice to you anymore. And in fact, they will um, give you beauty and wisdom to counterbalance um, those, uh, those difficult passages. Thank you so much. And we're almost at the end of our interview and I wanted to know who or what is inspiring you today? Mm, today, today you're inspiring me. It's so beautiful to connect with you. And I love the quality of your questions and your presence and your emotional willingness. <laughs> so it's you, Tasha. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you. And I know that the people that listen to my podcast are going to want to know more about you, more about dreams. Where do they, how do they get started into their own exploration of dreams uh, or understanding their dreams and all of that. And I know you spoke a minute ago about your dream school. If you could give some information, just give listeners information on how to connect with you or yeah, sure. So I have a website, tokopa.com and it's spelled T-O-K-O dash P-A. So there's a hyphen in there, tokopa.com. And um, I tend, I, you know, I do offer things like retreats and workshops in times where we're not in a global pandemic, um, but that hasn't been possible lately. So I've done more online offerings. Um, which I usually list there, but I have this wonderful course that I created called Dream Drops. And it's a self-study course. And I call it Dream Drops because each one is like a drop. It only takes three to five, maybe seven at the most minutes to, um, to receive each daily lesson in your inbox. And they're designed to bring moisture into your life. So when you're feeling that sense of, um, you know, meaninglessness or that sort of aridity of um, not knowing how to connect, it can really restore that moisture to your life to turn towards your dreams. And so the course is designed to, um, it's 30 
days. And in each of the subsequent days, we go a little deeper, a little deeper, a little deeper. And um, yeah, people love this little course, which is wonderful. And I just sort of give the, it's um, sort of the basics or the cornerstones of, of dream work. And then, um, and then we can go deeper after that. So that's probably the best place to start. That is wonderful. And I'll have a link in the show notes for your um, oh, website you. so that they can they can sign up for that. Uh, thank you for being here today. It's just my great honor. Um, thank you so much. Oh, thank you, Tasha. All the blessings to you on your program and in your life. And I can't wait to read your memoir. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much for listening to When We Speak. Follow me on Instagram at Tasha Hunter, LCSW. If you haven't done so yet, please rate, review, and follow me on iTunes and share it on your social media. If you want a copy of my book, What Children Remember, it is available on Amazon. Until next time.